This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. I want to open up today just by being honest with you because I I feel a lot of tension as I hit texts like this and um, and mostly because there there seems to be a, a sense in the listener to um, believe that just because I'm saying something uh, or preaching something that I've attained something. Um, This is not true. Uh, As I read a text like this, I stand under and sit under and, and feel the weight as I approach a text like this and feel the conviction and work through these things. I want to say that the gospel is, is freedom for me. Freedom from sin and, and addiction for sure and freedom from much of my own pain and suffering and all those things. But primarily, my testimony uh, is as the gospel took root into my life, it freed me from self-righteousness and the reality of me being uh, the center of my own life my own spirituality, my own relationship. I, I stand under a text like this, realizing my own past, my own selfishness, and, and I say this not even light. I believe I was and can be one of the most selfish people. And that is why when the gospel really took root into my heart, the way that it came to me was so freeing But I also realized that that freedom came as the Spirit of God revealed to me what Christ has done for me. But as others hear the gospel, it can be offensive. And here's here's the reason why. Has anybody ever thought, man, if, if the gospel is offensive, what's so offensive about saying you can be forgiven. You are loved. You can be. Uh, you can have prosperity and health. What's so offensive? I think. Why do people get offended by good news like that? Because that's not the gospel. That's the American prosperity gospel. The gospel is this, and this should be freedom for us. It's not about you. At all. It's about God and loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's about loving others. That was freedom for me. There's a theological term. I'm going to try to do what I can to kind of move through this, but I want you to see this is not just rooted in something that was just said to me. This is rooted in Scripture. Theology has, has, has studied this. This root of sin is this idea of what uh, Augustine, he, he kind of termed it this, this incurvatus in say, which is this incurving. So the best way, and I I won't read both of the quotes, but I'd love you to put them up on the screen. This is from Augustine. He says, humanity is bent inward, seeking its own good apart from God. There's a whole quote in that. 
But the gospel is this. By coming from heaven to earth, Jesus draws us away to, to God and redeems us from the inward curve. And as we grow in love of God, we have this proper now self-love and love of others. Luther continues this thought. If you put the next quote up, Martin Luther continues this thought as he kind of builds upon, if you will, and says, our nature by the corruption of first sin being so deeply curved in on itself. And then goes on to talk about how this curve is so vicious and so uh, so wicked that we even use God himself for our own sake. Here's how we need to understand sin. When someone says all have sinned, what we hear in our minds is We've drank too much. We had sex before marriage. We, we did drugs. We, we did all these kinds of behavior. That's sin. All of that out there is sin. Where scripture says, no, 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 no. Actually, if you look at money, money is not sin. It's this putting money in sinful hands. Sex is not sin. It is sinful people perverting this. What is it? It is people who are curved in on themselves, who use money, sex, drink, food, all for self-pleasure. Sin is a radical curvature to self. You were created for God for his worship and for his glory and for others. Everything around you tells you opposite. That gospel is offensive. Because when we experience salvation, what we are being saved from is sin, selfish pride. Where everything in the world tells us. Now, we can talk about the world, and this is easy because we can look around and everything is about look out for number one, take out for yourself, look out for yourself. I mean, I just scroll through my Facebook feed and you just have a bunch of these kinds of pithy stupidities. It's all about me and mine, got to take care of number one, got to look out for my peeps, my fam, whatever. Just everything's about me. Don't got time for anybody else who's not about me. We could pick that apart. You watch TV, every show, the biggest problem in people's minds is when people think of other people. Like, I watch those, you know, those reality shows where people are trying to lose weight, sit there, eat chips, you know. <laughs> sit there and eat weight. It's a, the problem is you sit there, you see them, and their biggest problem is the reason why I'm so heavy, the reason why I got there. Here's my biggest problem. My biggest problem is I've taken care of others too much. I've been so unselfish. I just need to be more selfish, and I'll start losing weight. They literally believe the biggest problem in their life is unselfishness. 
And if they were more selfish, if they were more self-centered, they wouldn't have these problems. The world believes this, and that shouldn't surprise us because that's sin. That's the nature of sin. What should worry us is when the gospel in America takes on the same mantra where modern Christianity has adopted this mantra and everything we do is calling it the gospel, but it really is just self-help. All's it about is me. What can the church do for me? What can God do for me? I only need to go to my word. I, got, I, never, I haven't gotten to my word in a long time. I haven't read my word. I'm like, when did it become your word, right? I thought it was his word. The only time I go is when I need what? Help. The only time I listen is when I've messed everything up. And so we've done worse than the world in that we make everything about ourselves, but we've made for ourselves a God who is all about us. We've made God worship us also, which is far more twisted. God's all about your prosperity, all about your health, all about your comfort, all about their... So the reality is we've made for ourselves this God who would never offend our self-worship. You rarely hear scriptures like, die to yourself. Die to yourself. Live for God and for others, that the gospel is freedom because it frees you from sin and selfishness and it turns you outward to love God and to love others. Yeah, but it says, as you love yourself. Yeah, but that's a given. Because a lot of people, well, if I don't know how to love myself, I won't know how to love others. You know how to love yourself. You're doing it too much. Self-love is not your problem. Maybe perverted self-love for sure, but self-love is not your problem. It's, it's actually what the apostle uses when he helps people in marriage, right? He says to the husband, listen, you take care of yourself really good. There's always money when you need it. There's always stuff when you need it. Whenever you need food, you make sure you have. You take care of yourself really well. So if you know how to take care of your own body, do that same thing for your wife. The apostle in his marriage says, like Christ who gave himself for the other, that's the key to marriage. You're thinking about yourself too much. Self-protection is your problem. Self is your problem. Selfishness is the brokenness that's rooted within sin and self and curvature. And if you see, I, I love God Love others as you love yourself. This reality of this radical conversion 
is this no more of this? And now because of what Christ has done, who is the ultimate of showing us who he is God, who has all power and all authority, and what he did is sent his son who died the death we should have died, who rose from the grave, who has done the work for us, who has brought us and washed us and cleansed us. He did it all for his work was done for his father's glory and for us. He lived a life for his Father and for us. Life is not found in self-centeredness. The gospel says life is found in loving God and loving others. That's offensive to sinful people. And pharisaical people You see, all of Acts is this outflowing of this. He's, Jesus lives this life, comes and he's with his disciples. He says, all of Acts is this ministry of the resurrected Jesus. As he's ascending, he says, the power of the Spirit's going to come upon you, and that Spirit's going to break you open, and you are going to become witnesses. In Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You are going to become witnesses. Here's what's going to happen. The same way as Jesus comes into the world when the Spirit comes upon him, he goes immediately after that desert experience. The Spirit comes upon him, and he goes out of that desert. And he, what does he do? He goes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's broken me open to proclaim the gospel to who? The poor, the sick, the weak, the marginalized, those who are afar off. He's been placed upon me to proclaim, to heal, to deliver. The Spirit's broken me open. He's done the same thing with his church. The Spirit breaks the church open out of this upper room and breaks them into the streets to be witnesses. And the church is to live this out. You see, salvation is not just personal. What we've done with salvation is made God's work of salvation all about saving you. Salvation belongs to God. It is for God and it is for his kingdom. Here's what salvation is. Salvation is from something you come out of darkness, that's deliverance. So salvation has a deliverance element from something. You come into something, so it's from and it's to. Salvation is you've been brought into a family. You've been adopted. You've been a delivered. You've been adopted. And salvation is for something. For good works. You've been given a purpose in salvation. Here's what you experience. Here's what God does in salvation. Delivers, adopts, gives us purpose, identity. He gives us a new name. He gives us his purpose. He makes us his witnesses. He breaks us from self-centeredness and he centers us on himself and others. We live in an upside-down kingdom? Or is it right-side-up and everything else is upside-down? 
You see, the reason we need the Spirit of Christ in us is because this thing breaks us open. The reason why I personally have a struggle, we personally have a struggle relating to a text like this where Paul, who has been in prison for so long, now going on maybe two, three years, over two years, maybe going on three years, been in prison, been falsely accused, been persecuted, been called whenever he wants to to just come. Whenever they want to talk to him, he has to come, and then he just declares the same message. They're constantly going after him, wanting him dead. Everybody's saying... One is it's mirroring, mirroring the work of Christ. This is what happened in Christ. This is now what's happening in his people. The other thing we have a hard time relating to something like this is because immediately we put ourselves in this position and go, if this was happening to me, this would be completely unfair. Why did this have to happen to Jesus? Why does it he stop? Why does it have to happen to Paul? He said, look, guys, this is wrong. This is, this, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you attacking me? Why are you going at me? He knows that what is taking place is not because of him, but it's because of the work of the gospel. And now he's facing, and he had been warned beforehand as he's going to Jerusalem, and as you see the work of Christ, and as you see the work of Paul being done, as you see the work of his people, the, the thing that continues to be seen is when they hit hard, tribulate times, the thing that keeps people grounded is knowing this is not something I would do to myself. But this is something God has given me a purpose in this earth to do for others. What keeps them from going literally bonkers is this reality of the joy that's set before him. Christ suffers the cross because his Father's will and for our salvation. We don't have a category for that. When you see people hit tribulant times, you see the actual theology they believe. There's no way God would want me to be broke, sick, problems, weak. There's no way he could have a purpose in pain. How could this glorify him? How could this be used for his mission? How could this, and the reality is, we don't care about his Kingdom and his mission, what we care most about is our comfort. So it's hard for us to relate to a text like this because most of us in this room don't have a sense of our salvation being more than personal deliverance. Because we don't see how salvation is all this one big act of deliverance, adoption, and calling and purpose. He saved you from, into, and for. And that's all one work of salvation. You see, Paul, in the sharing of his testimony, as he's standing before Agrippa, sharing his testimony again, he shares that same reality 
I was the worst of all of them. I killed, I voted for people to die, I went on road trips of persecution trying to kill people. I was the worst. I was broken, but God, there's that but God, met me on the road to Damascus, blinded me and showed me this wasn't about my zeal for religious religion. I was self-righteous and God showed me, you are persecuting me. He blinded me and showed me that all of my religion was filthy rags. And he brought me into the light, out of the darkness, into the light, and in the same moment said, I'm calling you to preach to the Gentiles. All in that work, Christ's work of salvation is bringing us out, bringing us into, and making us witnesses. The reality is most of us, church, have a salvation that's so truncated that anything beyond personal benefit doesn't fall into the category of us even sharing and witnessing to the kingdom of God. So it's hard. Because we kind of put witness in kind of this category for the elite special forces of Christianity. It's not tied to the reality of what Christ's work has done, that he's taken the worst of the worst, made them his family, and given them a mission. Well, what if they're not ready? He'll get them ready. What if they don't have everything? They, they, they don't, but they have his spirit. He even warns them. It's going to be hard. Probably shouldn't do it. Church, we live in a world filled with Christians who have made the gospel all about themselves and preached a false gospel of saying it's all about you. I mean, that's our best evangelistic tool. Listen, God loves you. It's all about you. You should just let him bless you. You want to be blessed? You should say this prayer. Here we see an example of what it means to be a witness that I know is going to fly over the face of many of us and here's the reason why. For a lot of us, Christianity has become a lot about, I just need help. And I can't witness until I'm perfect. I'm concerned with that for a lot of reasons but primarily because it's completely antithetical 
to the gospel. The more you dig into the brokenness and pain of your own life, not that you shouldn't, but the more you make that the aim of Christianity is to think more of yourself, to dig deeper into yourself, to discover yourself, to find yourself. The more you make it about self, the darker a pit it becomes. When God is aiming to recenter you on himself and loving others. The most dangerous thing you can do is take yourself off the mission to care for yourself. When, even as care is happening because God is faithful to care for his people, he is still have a work for them to do so that they know there's purpose in this brokenness. There's purpose in this, that he could even use you in your weakest, most broken places actually to be a greater light. Because people can actually relate to broken people who are seeing the work of the gospel being done. Here we see Paul doing something that I want to encourage you with as we live this mission. One would be this. I think a lot of us think of evangelism in a kind of, we need to go and we need to do this thing. I want you to just notice most of witness of the church is upon request. Here's what I mean. He says, be ready to give an answer. Live in such a way that causes people to ask questions. Paul speaks as they ask him. We are constantly giving our views, what we believe the gospel is, unsolicited. People don't care what we have to say because they haven't seen the witness of us. I think we should be ready to give answers, to proclaim, and times God's going to put words in our mouths to speak. But I'm not just saying, hey, go out there and just pass out tracts and do this. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm, not just, I'm just saying, don't make that the only thing you do is evangelistic. Because the reality is, what we need to see as the pattern of the church, the pattern of the apostles, is that they were being, Paul is being called on by these people, and he continues to say the same, same message. Throw them back in prison. All right, call them back out again. Here's a couple things I want you to notice for those who believe that they are called to be witnesses, saved for something. One is this be bold and respectful. Be bold and respectful. Boldness is not disrespect. Boldness is not arrogance. Boldness is rooted in this. I have a gigantic log in my own eye, and I can see the speck in yours. And actually, that log gives me more clarity to see the speck in yours. Most of our preaching, now Paul preached it this way. He said, basically, all of them want me dead. All of them want to kill me. Why is it that you don't want to lash out of them and defend yourself? Why? Paul answers it. I was worse than all of them. Here, can I, can I tell you some things that just grind at me is in the name of Jesus, how Christians become completely disrespectful, defending things like their football and their flag. 
and literally disrespecting other peoples all in the name of Christianity. Calling people out, telling them they should, being so arrogant and judgmental. And, and, and the reality of this is when someone is, is preaching the gospel in boldness, there is such a brokenness in their hearts because they have such a realization that they are not saying, they all should die and go to hell. They're saying, I should. I'm the worst. I've done far worse than all of them. Gospel-centered proclamation is love at my expense. And you see that in Paul as he's bold declaring the resurrection, unwavering in Christ being alive, but respectful and humble. Two, it's personally impactful, meaning I I want you to just notice Paul wraps the proclamation of the gospel in the personal story of his life. You remember when the, the woman comes and falls at his feet and cries and wipes his, te- her t- his feet with her tears and his hair. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees of what kind of woman is he? And he goes, look, as much as the gospel is being preached, this woman's story will go as an example. The story of someone's life changed and the proclamation of the gospel. The reason why we need to embed personal transformation into the proclamation of the gospel is because so many of us preach words unaffected by them. And people can see it. Have you ever seen you know, somebody post on Facebook, look at how great our marriage is, and you're like, I was just seeing you all hating on each other like yesterday. (laughs) Like you were about to divorce yesterday and now everything's great. Like stop posting and date each other. You know, do something. Right? You're unaffected because you know their story. The reality is many of us Look at the gospel as if I could just argue someone down, they'll understand and they'll get it. Paul goes, no, I have been, how do I know Jesus is alive? Not just someone told me, he met me on the road to Damascus. I wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus is alive. He met me. It was personal and it was impactful. How did, how, how did he know that his, what his calling was? How did he know? How did he, how did he walk and overcome these barriers? How did he go through all this pain? How did he die? How did he stay in prison and stay patient? How did he know? Jesus had changed his heart and given him a love for people that were like him and on the margins. 
The other thing I want you to see is it was consistent and contextual. I wish I could spend a lot of time with this, but this is hard because everyone has different contexts. But I want you to notice this. This wasn't like Paul just going out one time and preaching. This wasn't just him. This is years of him being amongst, seeing their idols, seeing that he was consistently there. They would call on him. They, they, Agrippa has a, a, like a, a reputation. I want to talk to this guy. I've heard a lot about this guy. There was a consistency to his message and his reputation. He knew the context. He knew the idols. And he said, you, Agrippa, are aware of the customs and the context. You're aware of these things. Listen, he was aware of all that was around him, and he was consistently there. I, I will just say you this. The best witness I've ever been in this neighborhood has nothing to do with a moment, but that I've been here for a long time. People ask me, man, you look at your church, you have all these things. Tell us, how did you do that? I just said, I, I outlasted a lot of churches that left because it's hard neighborhood. Just here longer. Just stayed. Get a job, got to get a job, working, you know, building, you know, whatever I got to do. We stay. This is where we're called. These are our people. This is our family. Has it been easy? No. Has it been hard? Yes. Has it been miraculous? Absolutely. Has God done miracles? You better believe it. Consistent. Just stayed. I feel like many of us in this room, if we're honest, if you just visited one time, you wouldn't stay here. But you're like, man, over time, this preaching and this music and these people kind of just grow on you, you know? <laughs> just always there. Consistent, contextual, centered on the resurrection. Instead of boasting in his own works, he actually boasted in his weaknesses. Did you notice that? And boasted in the work of Christ. Centered on his death, burial, and resurrection. I think one of the greatest hindrances to our testimonies or our proclamation of the gospel is that we spend too much time Boasting in how strong we are and blessed we are rather than how big and faithful and good and gracious God is. Gospel proclamation is centered on Christ's work, resurrection. Last thing is this. I don't know how to give this to people but I do believe the Spirit does. Look at verse 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 26. I want you to see this because this, to me, is pivotal. And I want to read these few verses here. Verse 26. If I could find it, that would be helpful too. For king, you know about these things, and I, to him, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped this notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in short time, would you think you persuade me to be a Christian? In a short time. Notice that. Paul said, whether short or long, I don't care how short it takes or how long it takes. I would to God, not only that you, 
but also everyone who hears me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose when the governor of Bernice and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, it w- if he would not have appealed to Caesar. Notice this. He says something so powerful. He says, you think in just this one conversation, you're going to convince me to follow Christ? Paul points back to the heart. Whether it's this one, I've seen God do it. He could do it in this one if he wanted to. Or whether it takes me forever. My heart and desire for why I am in this place is not only you, but that all would be saved. That's God's heart. God's heart is not just for that. Damnation and curse and sending people. Scripture says God's heart and desire is for all to be saved. This reality drives us as his people. How can I not take personal accusations? How can I not, when they're falsely accusing me, how can I look at the ones who are trying to kill me and then say to Agrippa who's standing, I don't only want you saved, but all of those people who are trying to kill me and trying to keep me in prison, all of those people, I want them to be saved. The gospel's not just for you, Agrippa. It's for all even my enemies. The gospel goes far beyond. I I don't know how someone gets that heart unless Jesus is alive. That's what Paul's saying. They kind of walk away and have a little chat, all of those, Agrippa, Felix, and here's what he says to them. They say to each other, He could have been out of prison. He could have been out of prison. But now he wants to appeal to the other. He wants to keep this. He could have been out. He did nothing wrong. They could see it. How many of you remember the story where Paul was in prison and singing hymns? Prison shakes. The doors open. The guard's like, I'm dying. Paul goes, nah, hey, we're still in here. Don't worry. We're staying in prison. We're already free. These prisons weren't binding us. We're already free. In that moment, the prison guard gets saved because here's what he saw. Somebody who was not concerned about personal freedom because they were already free, but cared about the guard. The reason why you are having a hard time finding your purpose in the gospel is because you're digging into yourself to find it. When the only place you will find purpose is in Christ and in his love towards others, in others. Here you see Paul, who could have been set free again. All of them said it. You could be set free. You could have been out of prison, but no. He kept pushing. 
Paul in this is not worried about getting out of prison and finding more covered. Here's what he wants. He wants that king and everybody else to know Christ. If I got to stay in prison for how long? Whatever. Let's do it. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Church, this reality is so against what we even believe about salvation. It's so against what we believe. But I'm, I'm not standing here to, 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 to lead you into death. I, I'm proclaiming this as freedom. And I know that it's not going to hit all of our hearts this way. But hear me. The gospel will set you free from self-centeredness which is destroying you, all of your relationships. It's breaking everything around you. The world is corroding under this reality of everyone is only thinking of themselves continually. Doing what is best for self. Isn't it amazing that we get mad at people for being selfish when all of their lives we just teach them, hey, do whatever you desire. Do whatever you want. Do whatever's best for you. Always think about yourself first. Always have these realities. Like, and then we get mad when they're selfish, when that's all they're taught. When that's all we know, when that's all we believe. And then the gospel breaks in and frees us into this I live for God and for others. And in the death to self, I get to find true love. Love of God, love of others. In the dying to self, I actually find life. In the losing of self, I actually find myself. Can I, can I tell you, there has been times where you see people Marriages, families, churches, communities. Having moments and glimpses of shalom. Like, that was amazing. And I'll tell you when that whole thing started falling apart. Ananias and Sapphira. Who goes, nah, man. I ain't giving it all to the church. I ain't giving it all to others. I need to hold back a little bit for myself. Just a little bit. Adam and Eve. God doesn't want you to be like him. You need to just think of yourself. You are. And then what happened when they bit into the apple? The first thing of sin, they bite into that, not the apple, whatever, fruit, right? They bite into the fruit. What's the first thing they notice? Self. I'm naked. What's the first thing that happens in sin is you recognize how naked you are and how you need to be covered. And so you start trying to make up other ways to cover up how broken you actually are and build a fashion line out of leaves when what you really need is the death of someone else to cover you so that you can be completely right. You want to know why you notice how broken and sinful and disgusting you are? It's because you're constantly curved on self. 
Because it's only when you look to Christ that you see one who gave all of himself, had all power, all authority, submitted to the will of his Father, lived for his lived for God, lived for the Father, poured out his blood, sacrificed his body for us. That every time we come to this table, what we are celebrating is the work of salvation. I've been brought out, I've been brought into, and I've been made for something. That's what communion is. It says this. We've been delivered. As we come together at the table as a family, we've been brought into a family, we've been adopted, and as often as we drink, the world will see that Christ is coming, returning. At the table, all three things are happening. You're remembering all of salvation. I've been brought out of sin. I've been brought into a family. And I've been set on display. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. 